You're listening to Orange Blaze, a Florida Trail podcast. Hey hikers, Misty here with an episode I had fun compiling. Since I'm taking a significant break for the next few months, I wanted to put together a best of episode of the first three years of this podcast. With 64 episodes to listen to, it was hard to pull just 10 folks here to showcase. Know that if I interviewed you and you did not make the cut this time, doesn't mean anything. I just couldn't do a three hour best of episode. So before each clip from the guest, I will come in and do a little commentary with what I know of the hiker and where they are now, if I know. I hope you enjoy listening to these hikers again. And maybe if you've not listened to their full episodes, I'll have the links in the podcast show notes at orangeblaze.thegardenpathpodcast.com. And of course, you can search for them wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, on to the episode. Melton Gritz Cockrell is the first person I've chosen to showcase, mostly because his presence isn't known online. He just doesn't have one. A multi-time Florida Trail thru-hiker, he has some fun wisdom to share, and I really liked his attitude when I met him at Billy Goat Day in 2020. Maybe you'll come across him out hiking this season if you're on the trail. I saw that blaze and I had no idea what it was, but I knew that I'd seen a blaze, a similar blaze. It was uh, silver on the Appalachian Trail, so I got to checking around and uh, I think I read about the Florida Trail. I seen it on the kiosk there mm. at, at one of the parks and started investigating. And uh, this was before internet and all that <laughs> other good stuff we have now. Uh, I finally found out that there was a Florida Trail, and so in 2000, I said, you know, I think I'll, I'm going to try that, but, uh, I said, <clears throat> and I was interested, and I had heard about the ECT, you know. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to go down there, I'm going to go on down to Key West, and start there, and hike the Florida Trail, and then I, and I, and then I'll go on up and hike the Appalachian Trail, and, uh, and then I'll come back and do the other sections later. And uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> so in 2000, yeah, I mean, you know, the ECT, you know, nobody, or, you know, Nomad was the only one that had really done the ECT well, at that point. I had met him. Okay. Uh, I had met, I was, a, I was up, I don't remember where I was up there, and I was camped out late one night. And very, very rarely do I build a fire. But that night, I had a fire going. And in walked this wild man with a pair of tights and long hair and two, I think he had a stick and he was just on fire about hiking and talking to the whales at Cape Gas Peninsula. And boy, he, I was ready to get up and go with him. I was ready to go wherever he wanted to go. You know? so, uh, and that was, uh, that was uh, a memorable uh, he didn't stay. He just talked for a little while and took he off. Was gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Jim Kern, the founder of the Florida Trail, is the second person I wanted to showcase here. My first interview for this podcast and one of the interviews people tell me that they listen to multiple times is my episode with Jim. And I hope to have him back on the podcast again this season. I had the opportunity to meet him in person two years ago at Billy Goat Day, and last year he published Broken Promise, The Plight of Our National Trails, about how many of our national scenic trails are still incomplete. Yeah, but you know, I want to get back to your question about Ocala. Let me, let me tell you 
uh, about the first hike in Ocala. That was a very important hike. Um, so I did the, uh, I, I did this thing in March, uh, by, you know, up, up to the Big Cypress, uh, to Highlands Hammock State Park. Then, then it got too warm. And in the fall, I had a, a hike to kind of explore a possible route in the Fakahatchee Strand. Mm-hmm. Another hike north of that, and and then in the, during the winter months, I I scheduled a hike uh, in Ocala National Forest, and that was important because the various places that we had been looking at were, were eventually abandoned, but the hike in Ocala, starting in Clearwater Campground, uh, mm-hmm. and we hiked to. Uh, we hiked to uh, Juniper Springs. Uh, that that stretch is still to this day a part of the uh, thirteen hundred mile alignment of the Florida Trail. So it's consequential. It's a, it's a, it's an important place. As a matter of fact, you know these historical markers that you see by the side of the road. Mm-hmm. They have they have put a, a historical marker uh, in. In, in, on the road, on the, the short road, on into Clearwater Campground, uh, acknowledging the creation of the Florida Trail, and we're, we're very proud of that. That's where it is, and that's that blaze that we put there that that day. Uh, in uh, let me see, let me see, let me think a minute. Was that before January one? Uh, sorry, I'm thinking whether it was the '66 or '67. I think it was in 67. I think it was in 67. So uh, that 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 was a very important uh, blaze because we we had orange spray can. The paint was in spray cans, and, there was, <laughs> and we would go along. I mean, we were winging it. We didn't we didn't know anything about how to do anything, and right. so we had these uh, cans of orange spray paint, and we started there in uh, in Ocala putting. Uh, orange paint on on the longleaf pines uh, there, and that, that was uh, that was the beginning. And uh, I hiked on that within the past year, uh, a me- memorable uh, event to go back and see the trail after. You know, it's been 52 years since right, we right. Founded, founded the trail. Yeah. Sander Fenn and John Keeley are two integral parts of the Florida Trail and the hiking community in Florida. They have put out new or updated guidebooks in the last couple of years, which you can see on FloridaHikes.com. And I know that Sander has been working on at least one fiction book, so maybe we'll get to read some fiction from her in the future. You know, what what hurdles we may be facing in the future. I'm, I'm going to step way back, and then I'm going to let Sandy do the modern, because he's been into it. You have to remember, when I hiked the Florida Trail, the first time with my 50 miles, I had a canvas backpack with an aluminum frame. I was carrying a canvas tent with no floor and no mosquito netting. Mm. My tent and backpack weighed more than my backpack on the Appalachian Trail. Mm. Wow. One of the monster things that's changed out there has been the gear. Now, the lightening of the gear has made it a lot more accessible to other people out there as well, because from my early days in scouting and then being out on my own, I rarely would run into anyone when I was out hiking. So that is the biggest thing that I have seen in my hiking lifetime 
is it go from only a handful of people that you'd run into rarely to now having, I tell people the Appalachian Trail has a community, and now slowly we of the Florida Trail have our own smaller community, and it'll never be the Appalachian Trail community, and that's fine because the smaller, closer-knit we are, the better it seems to work. So that's the part that I've seen now with the accessibility of the social media, the meetup groups, um, and and just the sheer number of people that are out there now. Uh, It's all changed for the better in that way. And then I'll jump in for my, you know, my first involvement with the trail was when I moved back to Florida in 1999. Uh, It was after those first couple of hikes on the Florida Trail, I found the Florida Trail Association joined as a member, immediately started volunteering to help update websites and trail information and whatnot. But the trail information portion of what I started doing and I've continued to do to this day was sparked by one person who's still very special to us, and that's Nimblewill Nomad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I met him in 1998 when he was doing his first long-distance hike up at Trail Bays in Damascus, Virginia. And he was peppering me. We were standing in the cafeteria line. He was peppering me with all kinds of questions about the Florida Keys. He didn't know anything about them, and he needed to go back and hike him. And what could I tell him? And afterwards, we stayed in touch, remained friends. So when he decided he was going to do a southbound ECT hike, He learned about the Western Corridor, which was a brand new piece of the Florida Trail in the early 2000s, and said, you know, I know nothing about it. Could you scout it out for me? So I said, sure. And I went out with a boyfriend at the time and hiked the entire thing end to end Mm -hmm. and sent him reports and took copious notes, lots of pictures. Um, There wasn't GPS at the time, or at least I didn't own one yet. But, you know, trail data, real data. And that was the beginning of my collecting trail data and sharing it with people. So it was to get him through his ECT experience southbound. After that, I started doing the 50 hike series, and that's what taught me how to collect trail data. And it went, you know, from the 50 hike series, I jumped into doing the first Florida trail guide. Mm -hmm. So at that point, my book on the Florida Trail in the Blue Book was only the second publicly available book on the trail ever sold in bookstores. There was one written in the late 90s by Nancy Gildersleeve that I think is called Florida Hiking Trails. We have a copy on our shelves here somewhere. Prior to that, the Florida Trail Association had made a determination that information about the trail should only go to people who were dues-paying members. Hmm. So in order to get maps or even trail descriptions, you had to join the organization. So even though the trail had been in existence for almost 20, 25 years at that point, and it was under everybody's noses in Florida, the only people who knew about it were FTA members and land managers. Oh, that's frustrating. And it is. And it wasn't until you know, my official guide came out in 2003. It was sold in bookstores nationwide because the publisher was Colorado-based. 
that people actually started learning about the Florida Trail outside the confines of Florida. And obviously, since that point, social media has accelerated knowledge of the Florida Trail something fantastically. Lily Anderson Messick is one of my favorite people to follow over on Instagram for her insatiable knowledge of Florida panhandle plants and plant communities. There is always so much to learn from her stories and posts, and because she works for the Florida Native Plant Society, you can see some of the very fascinating presentations she's given over at the FNPS YouTube page. If you're at all interested in broadening your Florida natural history knowledge, do check out not just Lily's talks, but others that have been provided on that channel going out specifically looking for plants and then also just wandering and hoping to find something. (laughs) But um, yeah, the St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge, that is very diverse habitat and they've been burning there pretty well. Um, And so there are a lot of plants there. There are a lot of milkweeds there. Um, And the National Forest is known for its carnivorous plant diversity. Um, It's one of the most biodiverse places in the world for carnivorous plants. And people come from all over the world to see them in the national forest. And um, so carnivorous plants are just really cool and a very charismatic, you know, um, type of plant. And there are many different genera that are not necessarily closely related in evol- evolutionary terms, but have evolved similar um, ways of surviving in these very nutrient-poor areas, and which is getting nutrients from insects. So there are all sorts of different types of carnivorous plants, and I love going out there to look at them. Yeah, that's definitely the highlight of Apalachicola for sure. And I, I think most people probably, if they're, you know, hiking on the trail, they're going to see pitcher plants and they may or may not know what's what that's about. Um, but there's other, you know, smaller, more diminutive carnivorous plants as well. Can you talk about those too? Yeah, so um, the there are actually pitcher plants that let, lie prostrate on the ground. Uh, and there are also other carnivorous plant species like sundews and uh, butterworts, which are pinkwiculas. And those both, the, all of these plants typically occur in the same areas because they're taking advantage of an area where there's less competition from other plant species because the soil is so nutrient poor. And they've adapted adapted and evolved to withstand that lack of nutrients by eating insects, like I said before. But um, the sundews and the butterworts have a different method of catching insects. They have like sticky substances, sticky glands on their leaves, and the glands actually secrete digestive enzymes that allow them to, one, they're, they're sticky so the insects get caught on them, And then two, they're able to digest and absorb nutrients from the insects right on their leaves. Hmm. That's, I mean, I knew a little bit about that, but still just thinking about that is just really cool. And and if you're walking along and you don't really know what you're looking at and just thinking that that plant is absorbing, you know, 
dead bugs. I, I will never forget the first time I saw pitcher plants in the National Forest. We have Saracenia flava, which is the yellow top pitcher plant. And it is a big plant. It can get, we have a subspecies called um, Saracenia flava var rugelii. And they can get, you know, three and a half feet tall, the big pitchers. And the pitchers are actually modified leaves that are modified to be these tubes. And they have digestive enzymes down at the base of them. And they catch insects in there and um, absorb the nutrients from them. But they're, uh, if, if any of your listeners haven't seen them before, they should really look them up because... Man, they are just this beautiful lime green color. Uh, and it's just unreal to see this whole stand of these tall, weird pitchers. They look like marching soldiers of some, <laughs> some otherworldly place. And man, it, it is just such an experience. And, you know, when I first saw them, I didn't even realize how special it was to see them because I didn't realize that they don't occur in a lot, m- most other areas, you know. Amanda Coldilocks Kincaid is someone who has kept a lower profile on social media the last few years. I do know that she's recently had a baby and is currently on the FTA board of directors and is still out there hiking. While she wasn't the first FT Granite Gear groundskeeper, I do know that her hike really spurred on other hikers to take on that Granite Gear groundskeeper challenge, and she's really inspired others to do more for the trail and trail communities. Okay, so... um. The Groundskeepers program is basically this like group of people that started from this this these two guys that started this program called Packing It Out. And I think they packed out so the whole point of it is um the idea like you pack in and you pack out all your trash. Right. And it was just like this basic idea that people weren't doing that, which they don't. And yeah. so what these two guys did is they did the AT and the PCT and on both of those trails, they packed out over 900 pounds of trash. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I think the AT was over 1,000 and the PCT was over 900 or it was, like, vice versa. And Granny Gear, like, worked with them. They sponsored them. They gave them gear. And so, basically, after I think after I think the Packing It Out's PCT hike, Granny Gear was like, we really want to start, you know, sponsoring this. And so, last year was the first year for the groundskeepers. And they only sponsored through hikers. Um, for a bunch of the major trails, um, this girl, Dirty Bull, did the Florida Trail. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think she, I don't remember how much she packed out. I think it was like maybe 60 pounds of trash. Um, I'd have to check. It's on their website. Uh, but um, this year, they decided to do uh, section hikers and through hikers. And so there's through hikers, I know, on, I think it was like ATPCT, Florida, the Arizona Trail, I think, had one. Um, and then there were section hikers that were taking over different, like basically parts of the country. Like there's some in the Northwest in the Northeast. Um, one up in, uh, up where Granite is at in Minnesota, I'm pretty sure the boundary waters area, okay. Minnesota, not Missouri. Those M States get me every time. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously me down in Florida. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> And so the whole point of them is basically they like they, they they want you to like get out and encourage people to not just like pack it in and pack it out, but leave it better. And so when you see stuff around, you know, the trails like our campgrounds that have been abandoned, like you pack it up and you pack it out. Um, and I know that the groundskeeper on like the AT, he had a similar situation that I had 
where there was like a whole campground that he ended up packing out. Wow. Abandoned. Then you see that, you know, I mean, I talked to my friends that I met that were flip-flops on the AT that would talk about people who just drop their, drop their gear the first 15 miles and walk out. And so you've got all this gear just in the woods or, um, you know, for Florida, you have a lot of backwoods dump sites. Yes, yes. That I it was really cool because like I'm not obviously going to be able to pack out three mattresses. Like I just <laughs> I don't have upper body strength. Like right. I know people think I might think I'm strong, not that strong. Um, but I mean, I pointed it out, and the people who mean the trail maintainers in the area, I got contacted by one of the angels, and he's like, "Hey, can you just let us know where that is, like the mile marker, and we'll go in with trucks and take it out." So it's something where it's like all these through hikers were like, oh, wait till you see the, you know, wait till you see the um, mattresses, wait till you see the mattresses. But because I was in this position as a groundskeeper, I was like, oh my God, look at this. And I guess people may have, maybe were listening to me in that kind of position. The response I got was like, oh no, we can fix that, which was cool. Right. Keith Curry Pochi's life has changed a lot since I interviewed him as a guest on the podcast. He was awaiting the birth of a second child at that time, and that child is now a toddler. In addition, Keith's life has changed as he and his family have uprooted and left their native Florida to live in Minnesota. Talk about a very drastic change. That said, Keith has been making the best of it, exploring Minnesota's wild and embracing the change in weather as best as a Floridian can. Do check out his Instagram to see the wonders of what Minnesota has to offer. Um, so there seem to be just a lot more wetlands um, yeah. out there. And and it's kind of what I always enjoyed is um, we'd have to go out to Orlando every now and then as a kid. And I liked going over and just seeing like this big sprawl there. I mean, it looks like a highwayman, uh, highwayman painting. Yeah. You have the huge storm clouds building up and you have the, the sporadic clumps of, of sable palms and, and reflecting over the, the slow moving water and, um, and then going over to to um, the Gulf, for one, the ocean's just a lot calmer. It's just a big lake. Yeah. <laughs> and and inland-wise, there there at least in where I was, um, the rivers weren't quite as as they didn't have the, as big a watersheds, and so there's the Mayaka River. Um, so it had kind of its little hammocks around the, the the river, and then you go out and you would be on the the dry prairie with uh, some islands of, of pine trees and i really i really enjoyed the the dry prairie um and out there it had recently been restored so they're still waiting for for some of the um prairie animals to return like the burrowing owls but it was still it was still really nice love the flowers right well i guess maybe we could talk a little bit about that your favorite florida landscapes because i think you recently wrote about feeling homesick for other landscapes when you're in another landscape of Florida, like you're there and, and you love it so much, but then you kind of miss the other parts. And I could totally relate to that. Um, but maybe talk about some of your favorite landscapes and just how diverse Florida is. And it doesn't seem like it seems flat, you know, people see it and they're like, ah, eh, nothing here, but it's crazy. Well, yeah, that's what I think because we're so flat, we get this diversity because it just, I mean, a couple inches of elevation and there can be completely different plants and animals that couldn't survive in the other elevation. My personal favorite and the one that I try to go to every year is Kissimmee Prairie. It's very flat as you'd expect from Florida, but you don't, I don't think a lot of people expect like the, the, you can see almost to the horizon with just like little hammocks of, of live oak and, and uh, palm trees. And I love going there because especially during the summer, you, you see the, the storm clouds build and it's like a, it looks like a little explosion in slow motion. And 
I really enjoy watching that spectacle. And then um, the the sky there is is since it's so rural, um, you get a nice clear view of the Milky Way, which is another thing people don't expect in Florida for some reason. Um, and so I always like because because it's so open there, um, I'll sometimes just stay up all night and you watch the Milky Way just kind of rise and then set. Uh, and then I think the other thing, and this might just be the nostalgia, but it is an amazing landscape, is around the St. John's, um, you go from from the pine flatwoods into the the very jungle-like um, hammocks where if, the, if there's not a trail going through there, I don't know how anyone would, would transverse. <laughs> every, the palm trees all are very similar. Every, there's the occasional red cedar or or live oak, but it's 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 very much. It feels like a, an actual jungle that you would find in, in South America. And then I like going through that, and then you kind of it opens up to the floodplain. And this might just be my thing for wide open spaces, but again, like the, just being able to see the clouds form and, and all the different animals you see going from uplands down to down to the lowlands. Yeah, I, I guess those two are kind of the two that I always find myself going back to if I if I have a little bit of time off. This episode with Kazmir Rosecki of Gulf Islands National Seashore is one of my favorite non-hiker land manager interviews so far because it was such a drastically different set of information that I was used to getting from guests. As a biologist, it is easy for me to gravitate towards flora and fauna and to overlook the cultural use and history of areas of the Florida Trail travels. So I hope to include more episodes like this in the future. Yeah, so when you walk along Santa Rosa Island, uh, whether you're uh, within the national seashore or outside, um, you are actually uh, walking on the, ancest uh, the ancestral lands of the Creek people. Um, the area would be colonized beginning in the late uh, mid to late 1500s. Uh, so you would have a lot of Spanish uh, some French and then British presences here on Pensacola Bay. The territory, uh, or the colony rather, of West Florida will become a part of the United States in 1821. And shortly after uh, that happened, the U.S. military began to come into Pensacola Bay and explore this as an option for development. Uh, the U.S. Navy would deem Pensacola Bay uh, a prize on the Gulf of Mexico for its uh, natural depth uh, and proximity to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and so it's going to be in 1825 that uh, legislation is passed establishing the Pensacola Navy Yard, uh, which would cease to exist in the early 1900s and be reborn as the Naval Air Station Pensacola. But it's because of the, the harbor, the, uh, the bay itself, and the presence of that Navy Yard that the uh, Army Corps of Engineers will come in and they will determine uh, how many forts are needed to protect the bay and the Navy Yard and where those forts ought to be located. Uh, the first and the largest fort to be built on the bay is Fort Pickens. Mm -hmm. uh, Army engineers would have the fort constructed between 1829 and 1834. The contractors relied on what are termed verbal gentlemen's agreements. Uh, so they would create these agreements with contractors to have the fort constructed. 
Uh, one of the primary contractors was a gentleman by the name of Jasper Strong. Uh, Strong uh, enslaved uh, somewhere around 100 uh, men of African descent when construction began. Uh, but by 1860, Strong will enslave 200 men and women uh, who he largely uh, rents out or to use the, the term appropriate for that time, uh, he hired out. So there's going to be possibly a couple hundred enslaved men uh, who army engineers forced to build Fort Pickens. Uh, they are going to receive large quantities of bricks that are being uh, shipped out to the island on uh, different vessels. Uh, those bricks also uh, coming from brickyards that relied on enslaved people to produce. Okay. And so uh, it's one of the great ironies in, uh, in wrapped in Fort Pickens. It's a fort being constructed to protect the United States and the basic ideals that the nation had been founded upon uh, to include uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in a place where all men are created equal, yet it's a fort where crimes are committed and enslaved people, people of color, are, are forced to labor. So there's a great sacrifice um, that comes with constructing Fort Pickens. Nimble Will Nomad. Wow. Well, re-listening to this episode to sample a clip for this show brought back a lot of memories. Getting to sit down in person with for the little bit of time we had is one of the most memorable events in producing this podcast. I was overwhelmed with attending Billy Goat Day, and now looking back after nearly two years of this pandemic, I had to think just how special that day truly was. Of course, Nimble Will Nomad recently finished his Bamada Baxter hike and successfully took the crown from other podcast alumni, Dale Graybeard Sanders, and is now the oldest person to complete the Appalachian Trail. Certainly what a life, and I can only hope that I'm still able to hike on trails when I am in my 80s. Did you watch your parents as they aged? If you um, they're they're in their well, my mom will be sixty, my dad's in his early sixties. But yeah, I am watching. Yeah, I am watching them as they're they're getting more health issues, and I'm worried about them and that sort of situation. And they tend to be more emotional about things that to you shouldn't be considered to be that emotional. Right. Less importance in things that should be important more importance and things that should be less important. So we kind of have a tendency to, for the younger generation, the older of us, to be kind of upside down on a lot of our thoughts and the way we conduct our lives. So that's that's kind of a, a clashing experience when I'm with so many people that are into the very vital times of their lives mm -hmm. when I'm not there anymore. Isn't the energy incredible? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Isn't the energy incredible? And, uh, so you took the energy and I took the energy and we just consume that and we thrive on that energy that comes to us. But when we leave here, we're not taking something with us that we've deprived someone else of. The energy that you and I have experienced here today is not a finite quality that we gain from talking to someone or having a wonderful uh, interchange or uh, just the joy of meeting and being with somebody. Again, that energy 
is not finite, it's infinite. So when I gain energy from you and your emotions now, uh, which are important to me, I'm not draining you of your energy. <laughs> okay? Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. So that was a wonderful experience today to be back in that circle of energy again and meeting them when the discussions were going on there and the introductions and everything. It was just electricity in the air and everyone was captivated with that. It was humbling to me, very humbling. And um, I mean, you spend most of your time, you know, in a cabin on the Flag Mountain, right? And um, so, yeah, you probably aren't necessarily <laughs> coming into contact with so many people on a daily basis oh, like I this. Do. do you? Yeah. Uh, there's much more activity on the mountain now. Um, the locals love the mountain. The mountain had been closed, was locked. The gate was, was batting. You couldn't get on that mountain for 20 years. And the mountain's open again now. Um, the locals will tell you it's because I'm up there. So <laughs> they identify me and the mountain as being a unit, mm. being kind of a composite or one thing, and the locals love the mountain. Mm -hmm. So they come to see me. There isn't a day goes by that one of the locals doesn't come to check on me. Are you okay, old man? You need anything? <laughs> uh, I haven't been grocery shopping in almost a month. They bring food to me. Uh, one lady's done my laundry now for two years and will not accept anything for her kindness and handling and touching and washing my cruddy, dirty, filthy clothes. <laughs> but she does it just out of love for me. So I see people pretty regularly on the mountain, so I'm not isolated in the least. And it's such a joy to have that responsibility. It's a real joy. Mm -hmm. Do you feel, like what you just said about the uh, locals, me thinking the mountain and you are one and the same, do you feel that way about that mountain? I'm the old man on the mountain, literally. <laughs> LP Lil Buddha Kitakaisi is also one of those hikers whose episodes I get told by other hikers that they listen to over and over again, and he is certainly one of my favorite hikers to follow on Instagram. Most recently, he finished another CDT through hike heading southbound, and of course, he's always out on the move on other trails, even if he's not through hiking. During his hike on the CDT, he also raised money and awareness for the group Stop Asian American and Pacific Islander Hate in an effort to bring awareness to the hiking community about the increasing hate crimes that have been occurring due to the pandemic on the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. This brought the attention of Outside Magazine, which included him as part of their Outsiders of the Year for 2021. Links to the articles and podcast episode for Outside Magazine will be in the show notes for this podcast. You know, I, I feel that there's a lot of people that get into through hiking, backpacking, whatever, getting out into the woods that they want to get away from people. And the irony of through hiking is it actually brings you back to people mm -hmm. yeah. because, you know, you are out there, you are hitchhiking, trying to get to that town to resupply. You know, that takes a leap of faith by someone to pick you up. You're in those towns, the churches that open up their facilities to home, uh, uh, to house hikers and to feed them, you know, and, and for me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I think anyone that meets me, uh, automatically assumes that I'm an extrovert, but I'm actually an ambivert. And, um, I don't know if you know what that means. But mm -hmm, it, yeah. Okay. Very well. And, and, you know, I, 
you know, in my job, you know, in my interactions, I, it's a performance almost because I generally want, want to stay away from people. But I, I'm comfortable in both environments. And I think for a lot of these young guys that get out there and gals, you know, they want to get away from people. They want to commune with nature and that's admirable. And that's certainly part of the reason why I'm out there, but I'm telling you right now, you get out there, you're going to fall in love with people again. And it just completely restores your faith in humanity because the generosity that I've received and I've seen bestowed on my fellow hikers, it's a beautiful thing. Yes. Yes. So I guess maybe we can move along, along the trail. You, okay. you talked about your, your being chased by the boar in the Kissimmee <laughs> river area, yeah. but in your journal, I didn't really see any outstanding incidents in the central Florida area, but maybe you remember something, you know, maybe along the three lakes wildlife management area or yeah. through Orlando, anything that, that stands out that was interesting to you during that, during that part of the hike. Well, I certainly thought the Kissimmee river was beautiful. I mean, that just like, there are three really, I mean, if we're just going to say central, I mean, that really stood out to me. I remember thinking it was so beautiful. Um, and F forever Florida was also very beautiful to me, mm -hmm. you know, even though it wasn't because it was very dry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was very dry. And uh, that little lodge there, really nice people. Um, you know, uh, they actually let me camp at their this. It's like this. Uh, I don't even know what it is. It's not a cabin, but they were like, oh, yeah, if you get there, you can just sleep there for the night. It's not a problem. And uh, they're really nice to do that. Um, and then I remember a lot of, oh gosh, I remember, I remember this is, this is when I had skipped, I think 40 miles. There was a 40 mile road walk. And, yeah. um, and so uh, I don't know if you know, Swede Hansen, he's no longer with us, but he uh, was really active with the Florida trail, but he was a trail angel of the trail. The name is familiar. Okay. Well, he actually, um, he's a, yeah, he, He's another, just another awesome guy that, you know, um, I reached out to him. He was on a list, a Florida trail, tra trail angel list. And I called him and I was like, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, sweet. And we had corresponded before and he was following my trail journals. I was like, I don't know about this next point. <laughs> roadblock. I mean, I've done all of them up until here. And I, well, I missed, I guess, like five miles, but you know, I just, I just, I don't know about this. And so he actually came and picked me up after the forever Florida section. And, you know, I hiked the five miles to the intersection at the beginning. So you had to hike five miles to get to the 40 mile road walk, <laughs> so wow. five mile road walk. And then he picked me up at that intersection and I actually went back uh, to his home. Uh, he lived on the East coast of Florida and I stayed there for two nights. And so that was great too. Uh, really nice guy. And when I came back to do, to finish the Florida trail, I actually met up with him because I'd, you know, I'm, you know, I made a promise. I, I said, you know, I know, I know you love to backpack. I know your condition. He's, he's a lot older, you know, that you can't, why not carry all your weight? <laughs> yeah. All of our stuff. And you just follow me and let's go do the Kissimmee river or the Suwanee. And that's what we did. But uh, yeah, he's, he was awesome. That section. So, so that section, that 40 miles section. Uh, oh, and then when I actually came back, <laughs> it was really funny. He was like, uh, and I know this is a little out of order, but since I'm talking about sweet, he's like, you know, you really should do that 40 mile road walk. <laughs> so, and, you know, and I was like, I will do it. I will do it only if you slack pack me. And now I know a lot of people don't like slack packing. I'm kind of one of those guys that, you know, I, I'm okay with it. You know, I, I, I haven't done it quite often, but 
I, I did, I did slack pack that 40 mile roadblock in addition to a couple of other sections further up on the ECT and Hey, Hey, whatever. <laughs> I can say I did it. I can say I did it. You know, but he was that, awesome, you know, and he met me halfway and had like, you know, drinks and stuff. And so it was really nice. That's awesome. And to close out this episode, Heather bought housekeeper and Scott Wiseman Weiss, the botanical hikers with a snippet on hiking of the Florida trail with plants on the mind. Heather and Scott are still out hiking in their home region in the Northeast. And most recently Heather released her most recent memoir, love in the long path about their 2017 hike of New York state's 358 mile long path trail. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I can't wait to see how their adventure unfolded. You know, seeds that were carried over from like, I don't know, the Caribbean or somewhere. Mm -hmm you know, that were dropped in there. So then you're looking at a native plant book and it's not in there. And you're like, oh, now I got to look further and I got to research further. Well, this one came from Guatemala or, or over in that way, you know, and this one came from, you know, so it's very difficult. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there was a real, there was a range and I kind of feel like each section of the Florida Trail had kind of its plant associates and possibly that's how the, the potential uh, book or pamphlet will even be yeah. will be laid out. Um, you know, like when you're in Big Cypress, you have all of the dwarf cypress trees and the alligator flag and the uh, wax myrtle, and then suddenly you hit the Seminole section, and that's practical fields of dog fennel and yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, and and Okeechobee with all the little. Uh, Spanish needles and Florida snow that were growing in the grass. You know, the wax myrtle disappeared. The uh, cypress trees were, you know, non-existent from what I recall. Um, you know, so each section was dramatically different. Uh, from And then you hit the prairie. Then you hit the prairie with yeah. um, the salt palmetto and the uh, candy weed and land and sleeve violet. Wild and, oranges and, like, lemons and citrus. Yeah. Orlando and... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, there was, there was quite, quite the range. And I guess it was beneficial that we were looking at, you know, the, the edible and medicinal plants, not trying to necessarily catalog all of the plants. And you that figure, right. Yeah. <laughs> an orange hanging from the tree, it's going to be sweet and it's like 88 degrees and it's humid as hell. And then you bite into it and it's like, this is extremely sour. <laughs> you research that, you know, those citrus trees were brought over from Europe as a bitter fruit and we cultivated them to be sweet. So it's only the ones that have been let go, you know, the longer they are let go into their natural state, they become more bitter. So we right. like, come across these trees and be like, uh, after like five times of coming across them, we're like, eh, I don't know, we'll skip that one. <laughs> yeah, the tangerines were always good. They were. They were. Yeah. We still loaded up our backpacks with oh, far yeah. too many yeah. oranges that turned out to be disappointing. <laughs> yeah. The actually the only grapefruit I have ever liked has been a wild grapefruit in Florida. Really? And yeah. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. That's interesting. It was actually a little sweet and you know, there seems like the grocery store ones are always just really bitter and I've never enjoyed them, but that one is just like miraculous. <laughs> Oh, well, the wild tangerines were just incredible. And, awesome. you know, when you're out there for that length of time, having any kind of fresh, juicy Like up by Tassahatchee and little big econ is where they are. And I was like, ah. Oh. Mm -hmm. oh, and then know. some were so sour that they made the back of your throat go numb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, oh, my goodness, this feeling never going to go away. <laughs> um, but, you know, very, very enlivening. Yeah. 
Um, I wanted to ask Scott from your perspective, because um, you were interested in like the more Native American aspect of of plants and and I guess wild crafting, because Florida actually has a pretty rich history of of tribal oh, culture too. Did you do any research beforehand uh, about about the tribes and that kind of thing? I had talked with a, a friend of mine, also uh, an old older Tory musician, about uh, edibles and medicinals briefly, but then he was headed out, uh, you know. Uh, out on uh, tour a little bit but uh you know he gave me a couple people that in the future we can call and uh and study a little bit more now but i didn't do as much as i wanted to because you know life is so busy but yeah that's something that when we go to you know heather starts to put together a book i can put her in contact with them and just get some you know uh get some native perspective of like the things that they used them for and you know which would be great because it's totally different than reading your it's totally different to getting that perspective like of european herbalism. yeah of european herbalism because you know she's kind of we found plants and i've been like well that's useful for this and she's like oh yeah and then she knows the the latin names and i'm like i don't know it's called <laughs> called snake root i don't know and it's true depending on the culture that you're looking at it, each culture has its own uses for the same plants yeah. mm -hmm. um so there's there's some crossover but you know i would say i'm trying to think of an example um what would be sweet fern sassafras or yes or yes no, so uh, sweet so sweet fern which is a right. native plant that is um local up here in the northeast right. uh i would say that sweet fern is a decongestant and diaphoretic which means that it warms the body whereas scott would say it's a blood cleanser i had never and uh yeah yeah it can heard of it as such can totally but it makes sense detoxify you when you're going through a cold and you know extreme stomach pains it can loosen the stomach pains and like and that's the, the diaphoretic properties and the yeah um, so we would geek out on plants like you know and then it'll go on for an hour <laughs> well so and so said that they used it for his mother, you know, his medicine man in the tribe used it for this. Oh, so then we compile the list and we're like, oh, that's interesting. You know, yeah, but, so it's been really great, you know, having having his perspective as well to contribute to, to my angle. And that's it for this best of episode for this podcast. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast since 2018. I really do appreciate it. It wouldn't be a podcast without, you know, both my guests and listeners. And I certainly appreciate all the feedback I receive. And as always, I welcome guests, inquiries, or ideas through my DMs over on Facebook or Instagram, or you can email me orangeblazepodcast at gmail.com. I am working on some new podcast merch slash gear. I recently had some small buttons made and I'm planning to create a few new sticker designs too. And I'll have more information on those when the new podcast season launches. And I might see if I can get some of those buttons sent over for Billy Goat Day for any of you guys that might be attending. So hopefully I can get that in the mail and off to someone before Billy Goat Day at the end of January. Anyway, best of luck to all the hikers out there on the trail now, and I can't wait to follow your journeys. Happy hiking.